0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men In Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men In Blazers pod special. This show features not one, but three musicians. Aaron Desner of The National... Chris Bayo from Vampire Weekend and Nathaniel Mott of 303. All are joined by their love of both music and the Premier League. There's a Liverpool diehard and two long-suffering Arsenal fans. Is there any other kind? Aaron and Chris came into the crap part of Soho in person to talk to us about their latest musical opuses, their footballing proclivities and, well, life. Nat called in to complete the musical trinity and talk about his authorship of one of the more remarkable Men in Blazers musical accomplishments of the last century. Here it is then, our Men in Blazers The Musical Pod Special. Our first guest is the guitarist for a band whose melancholic, haunting music regularly provides... Oh, the soundtrack for too many of my post-Everton loss sad naps. The Cincinnati native also happens to be a true lover of the game, a Liverpool diehard and one of Dirk Coit's greatest living admirers. Joining me in person in the crap part of Soho ahead of the release of his remarkable new project, Day of the Dead, a five, a five disc. Oh, Grateful Dead tribute album featuring War on Drugs, Jenny Lewis, The Flaming Lips and countless others is available May 20th. Welcome to the pod, the one and only,
1: Mr. Aaron Dessner. Thank you. Very very honoured to be here.
0: Welcome back, Aaron. Some of you may know Aaron through the work with The National, others through your new magnum opus co-production, The Day of the Dead, what must be among the longest, most complexly put-together tribute album ever, and we'll talk more about that in a minute. But most of us in Men and Blazers know you as high school captain, a tasty midfielder, the James Milner of Cincinnati Country Days team in the 1990s.
1: <laughs> I played enough to be pretty good, but also enough to know how far away I was from the real top level.
0: Hence James <laughs> Milner. <laughs> <laughs> He's actually a highlight this season. I oh, like James Milner. We're, we're going to talk about your highlights. What was your? Everyone, I have in my mind great memories of playing. Just the most amazing parts. You edit out all the all the suffering, all of the losses, all of the failure, and you remember just the the forty yard strike that somehow a toe bunger that flew in in a big game. Just the incredible moves, the elation. What is the apex of the Aaron Desna? football memory bank?
1: The older you get, the better you were, right? <laughs> um, to be honest, I, I there were a few moments where I had late in the game and there's a corner and you just imagine yourself having a full volley and then it happens and you score. That happened maybe twice, <sighs> you know, so I, I still visualize that. And we have these tapes that I think my mom made of highlights i should really, i should definitely get those digitized um, would you yeah <laughs>
0: and when you do you can come back on and we will do a show special where we just review them all it's fascinating because the older i get the more the shinned kind of tricklers that fell in yeah <laughs> become like 25 yard pinpoint wonder strikes in my imagination the human brain is a very healing and giving thing but aaron Destin, i've got to tell you your football love it deepens My Appreciation of America. Yours was a love, born in the meat and potatoes country of Ohio. What were the catalysts for you? What were your early influences?
1: I I had an older cousin who actually was a star um, player at Amherst College um, and then moved to France and played sort of semi-professionally. Jonathan Morris, he actually still lives in France to this day and he's kind of still a ringer, but we used to try to... You know, there'd be like a family bar mitzvah and we'd just chase him around we were probably four and he was like a star high school player and then went on to be a star at Amherst and you know we were really into sports we kind of music was something we did as you know even earlier but music was always like this kind of hobby whereas we thought we were going to be really good athletes we didn't realize that actually that would all fade and we'd be better at music but. sports
0: was the professional <laughs> life music was yeah. just
1: the sports was our chance and music <laughs> was just you know on the side.
0: Sports was the only way to get out of the Cincinnati Country Day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wild, the mean yeah, street. Yeah, we had
1: two options, right?
0: Your love of Liverpool Football Club, Aaron. How? Whither? Went? Explain.
1: It ties back into Norway and Denmark, of all things. because oh, The sister, Viking days. Yeah. Because they're kind of... Liverpool is very much, I would say, all throughout... You know, Scandinavia, they are, like, the main...
0: It's the Beatles and the working-class roots yeah. of the team that really attracts the Scandos.
1: Yeah, and so my sister fell in love with a Norwegian guy when she was 19 or something. This is, So this is 23 years ago, and his name's Ulla. And his half-brother is Joachim Forsen, who's an author in Norway and also kind of, like, a major Norwegian Liverpool fan club guy. Bella. So it started then... <laughs> But then I, I actually fell in love with a, a Danish woman. Basically, her whole family, and particularly her father, uh, it, it just diehard Liverpool fans. So it's sort of like it wasn't really an option for me to uh, be a supporter, but then I just. Got into it, and the national's booking agent is a huge Liverpool supporter as well, and is good at getting tickets. <laughs> so, so it just all works out pretty well. Plus, they're kind of a little bit of an underdog or something, or they're you know like the faded, the faded uh, legend. So I kind of like that. It's like you know they just don't know when they're going to recover, but it might happen, and that's like <sighs> kind of fun to root for, as opposed to being dominant. And you know they're not easy to root for.
0: Liverpool season so far. I have only two emotions, careful fear, and dead devotion. Pretty well sums it up. Huh. That's, a,
1: that's exactly what that song was written about. No, I, I think it's... Yeah, it's, it's funny. Every time I get myself ready for a big game, they seem to lose the ones they're supposed to win or something. What I know about you is that you're a big fan
0: of the work of one
1: Adam Lallana. It's the best moment of the season, his goal against Norwich, uh, to win five four that was the most exciting game i've seen in years and then shirt i shirt off of all the things,
0: hug smash glasses in his yeah. shoe we beat I norwich
1: i have that i've watched that probably a thousand times on youtube <laughs> just his glasses breaking and he's he's my new obsession but
0: you were one of the true brendan Rodgers believers aaron The firing it must have been a dark day in the desna house
1: it was it was surprising. There were a lot of a lot of texts frantic texting and emailing back and forth with London and Copenhagen amidst that news. But obviously also a lot of veiled excitement about Jurgen Klopp and just but I thought it seemed opportunistic on Liverpool's part but in a good way you know they were kind of if he was available and you know but Brendan Rodgers I I still felt he was headed somewhere
0: what was it that you loved most about him was it his sausage finger sideline gesticulations (laughs) or the 73 bleached teeth he managed to jam into his gorgeous fantastic mouth
1: he just had this steely kind of disposition and resolve. I don't know. I oh, liked him. He wasn't that busy.
0: was only on the surface. The <laughs> layers below, 97% of them were made out of self-loathing. He was,
1: he was one, one Steven Gerrard slip away from know. you know a title. So I know. Sorrow they-
0: found me when I was young. Sorrow waited. Sorrow
1: won. I only want to know your, your national references relative to Liverpool. That's well, you keep perfect.
0: writing about football. Every song you write, <laughs> it's always a gift. <laughs> uh, how, they are about football, aren't they? True.
1: Yeah. you? you'd be amazed at some of the arguments that happen in the, in the, when managers and agents email us a schedule and I write back like refusing to do shows <laughs> because they they conflict with big matches.
0: Do you believe Liverpool will one day be the world beaters they were once in your youth? Are you an optimist by nature?
1: I'm, I definitely am an optimist. Uh, and I feel like Leicester City gives hope to like, to the in, little teams, to well to teams that might not have the same kind of money that other teams have or spend the same kind of money um, to reach that kind of dominance. But I think they have a chance, especially with Jurgen Klopp rebuilding. I, I always get disappointed by the transfer seasons where, it, like, it doesn't really come together, and they're like, "Next time," you know. And <laughs> there's all these targets, but they're not going to get. We all any have of them. memory of
0: Goldfish. That is the <laughs> true joy. You've just moved from Brooklyn to an upstate 18th century farmhouse, which I consider to be the big life move. But what I love about your new place, two things, the large TV system you installed just to watch (laughs) football matches, and that you've set up goals in your yard. You've got your own soccer field now, Aaron.
1: I'm usually out there by myself, but my my daughter Ingrid is... Field of Dreams. Yeah. Costner,
0: we've got to get the great Cincinnati Country Day Indians team of 1995 (laughs)
1: back together. It is funny, I'm superstitious. So I gotta hit a certain number of balls into the right, you know, into whatever I'm trying to do. And if I don't do it, I think that it'll affect like all the music I'm writing. It so does I have to just stay out there. It does, do. by the way. There's nothing.
0: <laughs> there's nothing
1: irrational about that. But uh, yeah, you play with your daughter. Yeah, I have a 5-year-old daughter, Ingrid. She's definitely getting interested. She watches the games with me. She understands that it's Liverpool that we're rooting for. She she gets very interested like when people get hurt and wants to know what's going to happen to them. But yeah, it's fun. It's and she shows she's already one-timing the ball back and forth with both feet, which is without me saying like, you know, ball moves faster than you can move. So there's there's something interesting oh, going I, on with her. I
0: see coach Deschner <laughs> in the future. But we got to talk about your other love. Your your hobby. Yeah, you, yeah, music. The, the side show. yeah the sideshow yeah the sideshow one of the stories i love most about you is it your early encounters with the music craft you once said my dad was a great jazz drummer his vomits for present was a slingerland drum kit that's still in the basement of your house you remember finding it you said when bryce and i were seven years old dad started playing it and our eyes just popped open at keep thinking about that story and wondering what it'd be like to just have a dad one minute and then a superman dad just the next did it just completely change everything
1: yeah we had no i mean it was interesting we had no idea that he was a musician because he had by then long been in business i guess and uh kind of got a real job quote unquote a real job but he had played crazy <laughs> like fusion jazz in in the 70s and and really been serious drummer for Thirty years, um, and, and had all these old he had old school technique. When he saw that we were interested in that, then it kind of that really opened up music for us. So like very soon, we were like playing jazz with our dad, who was like an amazing jazz drummer. So he can't play a straight beat, by the way, but
0: <laughs> oh, he listens to all podcasts. You follow. I think you can play a straight beat, Mister Desna. But I've got to say, credit whichever aunt gave a single and drum kit to your dad for his vomits because it's a radical gift and it paid off in the national some forty. Or 50 years later, you studied Jewish history at Columbia. And then after graduation, very rock and roll, you worked in Yale's Holocaust Archive. Back then, when you were amongst the stacks, were you like, my future? It's rock and roll. (laughs) Or do you recognize that you might have walked over the past 10, 15 years, the road not taken?
1: Yeah, I think even back then, you know, we were very interested in football soccer primarily and then and we're also we were into history and I took it pretty seriously at Columbia and I never music was always this this thing like literally like my hands just had to be like on a guitar on a bass or on a piano just doing exercises but I wasn't actually thinking this is what I'm gonna do and I think that might have been part of why we ended up successful because it was just some it was second nature and it was always just something we we did but uh, I used to think being trying to become a professor of history at a college that would be like the ultimate rock star thing once i once i realized i was not fast enough or strong enough to be like a proper you know player in the premier league for example i just i i decided that i should try to be a professor of history and once i realized that was kind of a struggle against loneliness and depression then i was like all right gotta try this rock star thing god you and james
0: (laughs) milner have walked very similar paths i've got to ask you you've achieved what you were moving towards for the first decade of your life together as a band. When you've broken through the cloud level and you've reached the peak, do you feel a sense of achievement and accomplishment? Or are you like, wow, there's other peaks that need to be climbed, new life goals?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, you, we finished Trouble, Find Me, that whole cycle we headlined the O2 Arena in London. And it was definitely a moment of, wow, you know, how did we get here? I can remember just sitting on the stage and during soundcheck looking at this Arena in London and uh, feeling that, or same thing at the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. You definitely have a moment where you're aware that this is happening, but then the next day there, it seems like you never written a song and you're never gonna, you know, or like it's just another mountain to climb. And I think that's because it's all relative. There's never with any kind of art or any passion that people have. You're always striving, and it's like once you reach one place, it's a plateau to the next hill you have to climb. So, yeah, right now I feel like I'll, I, I'm very aware of that because I am trying to write songs. So. We've
0: got to talk about the Day of the Dead, the Grateful Dead tribute. It's a celebration, really, a retrospective that you are about to release in May for the non-profit Red Hot. I mean, I've got to say, so many of the Americans I first encountered in Europe as a teen they were deadheads. They'd arrive in Europe with just trunks full of tape dead show bootlegs. And I'm looking at you now, Aaron, and don't take this the wrong way, but you don't look like any of them. <laughs> they're all like wearing Baja hoodies. They love to hacky sack. Can you even juggle the devil's stick?
1: I can play. I can, I'm can. i decent with the hacky sack, uh, but <laughs> it's a music that we kind of grew up in a dead belt, which there they, they, are certain parts of the country and... Where they were close to important venues, so all the older kids and and even my dad like had all the Grateful Dead's vinyl, and so like when when we were seven, eight, nine years old, we were very exposed to this, and it was just music that was in the ether, it was in the atmosphere, and we were fascinated by the musicianship and just the kind of uh, slippery, ceaselessly experimental nature of the Dead. So we just kind, of, I think Bryce and I, when, once we got serious about music, the Dead were always this, bad. we just kept coming back to it.
0: How many Dead shows have you been to?
1: Well, that's the thing. We never got to actually go see a you know before Jerry a Grateful Dead show, and uh, we did get to see him play with David Grisman And it's a, one of the biggest regrets of my life, other than that that Stephen Jared slip. I was going to say, you're an amazing things. man. You're an
0: amazing man. <laughs> um, I've been to one Dead show. They played Wembley, and I hitchhiked up. I knew I had to see this. Wow. America. It's just me and thousands of American year abroad people who travel from across Europe to be there. You have clearly got an amazing imagination because you have taken this emotional connect you have to the dead and you have used it to fuel a four-year odyssey to gather together for this album, which I have savoured over the past five weeks, a huge cast of characters. I mean, it is Robert Altman-esque in scope, truly an all-encompassing retrospective, 60 artists, 59 tracks. It's almost six hours long which is not long enough when you actually listen to it straight through, as I have several times. I've been living with it for the past month. Features so many of my favourites. War on Drugs, Courtney Barnett, real estate Cass McCombs, Sam Amidon, Phosphorescent, Jenny Lewis. Oh, their cover of Sugary. Fantastic. And the great American, Bill Callahan, who kills Easy Wind. I've got to ask you, did all the contributors... Sixty of them. Did they all step up and just reveal themselves like a Scooby Doo baddie pulling off the mask and saying, "We are deadheads like you"? Or did he have to evangelise?
1: There's certain people that we knew, like Lee Rinaldo from Sonic Youth, or you know Stephen Malcolm's Pavement, or you know Bruce Hornsby and does a track with Bonnie Bear and his high school band, D Armin Edison. And I kind of knew those things, you know, would. Happen and those people would be receptive. war uh, War on drugs. I knew that Adam played Touch of Grey already, and you know the Walkmen do in their final day, final recording as a band. They they came to the, my garage and recorded Ripple. But then there's others where we we were seeking something, and we were kind of had to educate people or encourage people to explore it. And about half of the record we made, sort of, we created this sort of house band, which is basically the National with some friends. And we would record tracks and and sort of ghost sing them because we're all sort of obsessed with this. So we can kind of like (laughs) pretend that we, who the vocalist was. And then we would send them the the music and then they would send us back um, vocals. And some of it was made remotely like that. But it was, to be honest, I would still be making this record if someone hadn't like pulled the plug and been like, you spent all the money now, just six (laughs) hours is enough. I was like, no, it's 12
0: hours. (laughs) You've immersed yourself in the dead. You produce this album, which is a work of American cultural beauty. But now when you go back and listen to The Real Dead... Does it sound the same to you? Are you like, eh, it's not as good as my
1: version's. Well, that, no, I mean, that's the beauty of The Grateful Dead is there's it's an endless well that you realize, you know, oh, we didn't, you know, we did achieve a lot, but it's still as elusive as ever. And again, that wasn't the point. We weren't trying to sound like The Grateful Dead or solo as well as Jerry Garcia or anything like that. But I think we did make a contribution, hopefully, to the sort of cultural legacy Of the band just by showing all the places that this music has seeped into. And it was nothing but amazing fun. It's basically almost as fun as waking up on a Saturday and watching a game, you know. But that's like goes on for four years.
0: (laughs) (laughs) But the act of producing a record, I mean, not just the Day of the Dead magnum opus, but you also just produced a fantastic Frightened Rabbit album painting of a panic attack. And by the way, Die Like a Rich Boy is a beautiful, beautiful track. We had Noel Gallagher come on our show, and we asked him, "What producer Noel thinks of musician, Noel?" And he said, "Noel, the producer thinks Noel, the musician is a lazy bastard." <laughs> he said, Either. "He must try harder. He must f- try harder, he must dig deep and go to the well." And he said, "Noel Gallagher the musician thinks Noel Gallagher, the producer,
1: is a genius."
0: <laughs> what does producer Aaron Desna? Think of musician Aaron Dessner and vice versa.
1: Producer Aaron Dessner would probably think musician Aaron Dessner needs to take some more risks and like, you know, (laughs) just live a little, probably. Musician Aaron Dessner would tell producer Aaron Dessner to f*** off. (laughs) (laughs) I'm watching the game.
0: And give out more hugs. Yeah. I've got to say, Aaron Dessner, Day of the Dead, will be released digitally May 20th. It will also come out on CD- and there's a limited edition, oh, I want one of these vinyl box set. All profits will help fight AIDS, HIV, and related health issues around the world through the Red Hot organisation, Aaron Desner. You are a top mensch.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Our guest today is the basis for a Grammy Award winning band that's synonymous with New York City But three years ago, he decamped to London where he experiences every American Premier League fan's dream getting to live in the same city as their club. Yes, Stoke City fans, you could do that too. It was from within shouting distance of his beloved Arsenal's Emirates that he released his first solo album, The Names, last September. We welcome to the pod from Vampire Weekend and Bayo, sitting right before me, In the crap part of Soho, the one and only, Mr. Chris Bayo.
2: That was a beautiful introduction. Thank you.
0: It's all I've worked on. Yeah, yeah, okay.
2: All right. I've (laughs) put
0: everything, I've I've given everything I have to give into that. It's all downhill from here. I'm overjoyed to have you for two reasons. Number one, to me, you are one of the greatest things to come out of Colombia since Carlos Valderrama. But also, (laughs) I want to thank you, Chris. We covered the running of the bulls. In Pamplona, last summer, eight days of broadcasting 4.30 in the morning wake-up calls. And every morning after I fumbled with my alarm clock, I would turn on your track, Sister of Pearl, with its Roxy Music-esque hooks. It was like an emotional adrenaline shock.
2: I really appreciate that. We had um, like, a, a term within Vampire Weekend where if you, like did something nice for yourself, like you pampered yourself, the term would be like, I'm going to take it to Pamplona. (laughs) Like if, uh, let's say you're going to go get sushi after a show. We'll take it to Pamplona tonight. Yeah. So I'm glad that uh, I helped you in your uh, times in Pamplona.
0: We're going to take this to Pamplona together because Vampire Weekend, they're inextricably linked to New York City. But your solo album, The Names, your beautiful solo album, was inspired by your relocation, your very odd relocation. To England. You had it all here, Chris. You were the modern vampire of the city. And you up and off. Why? Whither? Went? I moved from New York
2: to London about three weeks after Modern Vampires of the City came out. And I think moving to another country and putting out an album at the same time, it's not something I would necessarily recommend. Only for the
0: self-sabotaging listeners amongst you.
2: Basically, my wife had... uh, She was working at a company that had a British office. They offered to move us there and pay for everything (laughs) <laughs> and I thought that was really, really cool. I, I mean, I grew up in suburban New York. I uh, lived in the city for 10 years kind of after high school. And you, it's very rare, I think, to get that opportunity when you're in your late 20s to move to another country. And, and a place where you know some people, same language. So I just, I was very gung-ho. Same-ish. Same yeah, same yeah. Okay, language. yeah, same-ish.
0: Your wife's job taught you that. I, I just thought you were going to tell me it was like a lifelong dream for you to compare the London yeah. that you developed in your mind listening to Blur albums yeah, yeah. to the London that you actually found.
2: It is interesting because, yes, so much British music, like, informs what I do.
0: Part life.
2: Absolutely. What an incredible record.
0: Yep. Peckham. Peckham. Now I'm in Peckham. The part life of parts of London. <laughs> One time,
2: very early on in Vampire Week, and actually, like, um, in 2009, we got to open the Blur reunion shows in Hyde Park. <sighs> And for me, like like I um, I started I, I only took three months of guitar lessons, and in those three months, that just happened to be when um, Thirteen by Blur came oh. out. So that was like the album where I, I was asking, you know, my guitar teacher, okay, how do you play Tender? How do you play B L U R E M I? And like I would imagine that ends up being like a huge, huge influence on me if like every you know, when I play a guitar and pick it up, it's like that's one of my founding texts, I
0: guess. What favorite blur album?
2: I do like 13 followed by Park Life. I like the like kind of sprawling craziness of 13. I think also it also has just some incredible, beautiful songs. And it's also like really, really brave, huge pop act. But like opening up with Tender, which is, you know, a seven minute gospel, gospel song, thing. opening an album with that is just the only word I can think for it is brave. Yeah, I love it. I, I listen to it probably every two weeks front to back. And then, I mean, I, I
0: love Park Life also. Oh, leisure. yeah yeah that was the one that's yours yeah for me but you're you're living in peckham home of rio ferdinand and a very famous eel and pie house Manzies. i can't believe i'm asking this question after saying the eel and pie house mansees i'm gonna ask you how similar are new york city and london i mean have each city kind of globalized to the extent that it's hard to tell the difference
2: i mean i think that there end up being kind of huge differences it's feels much more sprawling the song endless rhythm on my record um It's a bit, like, inspired by a painting I saw in Tate Modern, but also thinking about, you know, the relationship between people in a city on the ground and the sky. So, you know, here we are. There's large buildings. Crap part of Soho. He's
0: pointing out to the meth clinic, listeners, as we speak. Go on. Large buildings.
2: Large buildings. We don't actually get that much of a sense of the sky, whereas, you know, most of London is way flatter than this and you feel the sky and that's you know for better or for worse like um even if it's gray it's it's really like uh having the sun be up until you know 10:45 at night in the summertime it's so so cool and and like beautiful at the same time the negative of that is um <laughs> november to december when it's pitch black at four
0: living amidst a depraved nation of mole men has its creative <laughs> benefits but w- w- what has shot you most about the english from your time there
2: you know what, hot take? Politeness. <laughs> what? Driving. I, I I've started hair. driving, and uh, on the motorway, way less honking. And <laughs> you're a your nation of polite drivers, I've found.
0: You've also had a chance to deepen your relationship with Arsenal Football Club. Yes. First, I've got to ask you, Chris, of all the teams to choose, how did that happen? Are you a masochist in other parts of your waking life?
2: <laughs> well... Basically, where I first lived was Islington, beautiful street called Arlington Avenue. And it was the first time in my life I could walk to a professional sporting event. You know, on Saturday in the afternoon, like walking the streets and seeing the, the flood of red in the streets, I said, okay, I want to get in on this. This is fun. Also, I had a very, very lucky hookup, cool. which is that um, a friend who lived in London, his boss had a box at Arsenal.
0: Oh, the convenience.
2: So I would be able to walk you know, 20 minutes suffering. from my front door
0: <laughs> to a game. But when I heard you describe some of your tracks on your album as, yeah. as hopeful melancholy. Yeah. And others as mournful yeah. bangers. Yeah, yeah. I love that word. If I got a band together, I'd call it the mournful bangers. When I read that, <laughs> I've got to say the Arsenal thing, it made total sense. Yeah. It's been a season for you of suffering, of hopes raised, yeah. of hopes dashed. But you're really a hockey fan by birth. Definitely. Big fan of Matt Zuccarello and his mighty Rangers, not so mighty Rangers. <laughs> How is going to the Emirates compared to your kind of known world of the garden?
2: It's very different. Like when I go to a Premier League game, the language of it, there's way more chance. You know, in the Rangers, they have Pod Van Socks, which uh, is a reference <laughs> to something that happened in the 80s. And I would say every three to five minutes, someone does dun, 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 bum, 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 pod Van Sox. And when you go to any, like, football match, any Premier League game, it's like there's 50 of those. Every team.
0: Every team's angry at pop vamp.
2: Yeah, everyone hates it. <laughs> <laughs> it's just that there seems to be, like, it, it goes beyond just, like, a single mantra to, like, a, a whole language that I find
0: really interesting. So what you're saying is the Rangers have released one good single. Yeah, yeah. yeah, but m- yeah. Most of the football teams have got a great album. You know what? I, I, I couldn't think of a more beautiful way to put it. But we've had Ezra. And mm-hmm. Chris Thompson on the show. Mm-hmm. Thompson. I'm going to call him Thompson. Thompson CT? Yeah, Thompson. I'm spitting it out because he's proper Spurs.
2: This is something I feel like I need to get on I record. Think,
0: I think this is why the band are having a hiatus. Yeah, it's right. Because of the North London performance envy. <laughs>
2: but go on. Basically, it was arranged that we got a tour of White Hart Lane.
0: Vampire Weekend?
2: Yes, yeah. Ezra, it was Ezra CT and me. And yeah. um, they were so, so nice. They showed us where the press conference where they let us walk on the pitch. It was like insane. The thing is, they were being so nice, and they wanted us to take a picture holding Tottenham jerseys, and I just couldn't say no to their faces. And I think that makes me a true, <laughs> true trash in the Arsenal fandom because there's not a picture of me doing anything Arsenal-related, but there is a photo of me holding a Tottenham jersey all over
0: the internet. If you it's look, on the, at it's on football, the internet. Yeah, football, yeah, there's yeah, that's a photo of you holding up a Spurs jersey. What is it about you? Is it that you are just so unbelievably polite?
2: I'm not the biggest fan of conflict, especially in like a really wonderful, lovely uh, social situation. And CT actually, he was being really—he offered to like in the first couple photos, he started putting the, his the Tottenham jersey he was holding in front of my face,
1: <laughs>
2: but they didn't run with that one.
0: <laughs> a lot of your friends I believe. I've suggested Mm -hmm. that you actually just switch your allegiance out of that I haven't. I've
2: been been told that that would actually be more uh, productive at this point.
0: (laughs) That is fighting talk. Were you much of a player? So
2: you know how there's the captain, the champions, the the glory, the people who are really good? Yeah. There's also the bench. I love the bench. Sometimes you're on the bench. Sometimes you're the champion. And uh, I was on the bench, bench warmer from the age of seven to the age of 18.
0: This is in Bronxville.
2: Bronxville High, oh. Bronxville Broncos. Yeah, I've
0: got to say, can I just say one word? Commitment.
2: <laughs> I really, yeah, it is kind of funny. Another that, one,
0: dedication.
2: You know what, that, I never really thought of it that way, but to be on the bench for 11 years, you know, I'm not getting those hours back. <laughs> that is, I never thought of it in those terms, and I, I, I actually do like it a lot, but I was... Long story short, I was terrible. I scored one time, and it was when I was maybe nine or ten years old.
0: Describe the goal, come on, because I'm sure it's etched in your mind.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. You pick uh, the ball at wet. Ball. So I'm on. Uh, I'm kind of like left side, uh, you know, facing the goal. I'm very, very close to the goal. I get really excited. There's, it's just completely open. Anyone could do it.
0: Chris, is, oh, there's some hyperventilation yeah. yeah. The ball in slow motion threatens to come to you like a cannonball. <laughs>
2: And I, I do everything I can to time it. I swing with my, my right foot, and I whiff. And my planted left foot, it knocks against that and goes in the goal. So I whiffed, but still scored.
0: You know, we all have in our memory banks just a deep emotional vocabulary. The fact that that goal is just etched into yours oh, yeah. is just, that is life. That is oh, life, yeah. Chris. Despite all of this, you've achieved something in the world of football that few have, Chris. Sister of Pearl is a song in FIFA 60, which is, to me, about as major as it gets. I mean, Disclosure, Foles, Bastille, and Beck, they all made it. FIFA mm-hmm. has hundreds of footballers in the game, but only 42 songs. Yeah. In ex- you, in, you can make the case that you're a more exclusive company wow. than Lionel Messi.
2: It is um, really exciting and one of the like great joys of putting out this record
0: i've got to talk to you it's about something that's less important than football life And need to talk to you about life and meaning before vampire weekend blew up you were poised to become a math teacher a math teacher i was a teach for america Mm-hmm. thanks to 11 tracks on one album your life just changed forever like gwyneth paltrow
2: yeah oh sliding doors yes yeah
0: did you spend any time thinking about the road not taken chris
2: when I went, got to college, I thought I was going to like start a band immediately. And then it kind of didn't happen in the first six months. And I started doing college radio. And that was a time where I really sort of expanded my musical horizons. A lot of the tastes that I got into, you know, things like Berlin era Bowie or like Maggot Brain by Funkadelic. These were records I discovered when I was like 1920 and are huge influences on the music that I make now. So I, I kind of stopped trying to make music, just listen to music for two and a half years. Wasn't really pursuing any bands when uh, Vampire Weekend started. And then all of a sudden, I, two years after that, we're playing SNL and going on tour and, and going to countries that I otherwise would have never been to my entire life. Yeah, it's, it's crazy to me.
0: What makes you decide when you've tasted that level of success so mm-hmm. quickly to go out and make solo projects? I've always wondered. I mean, is it about yeah. control... Is it about tonal freedom?
2: Basically, songs started coming out of me. And songs like Sister of Pearl, songs like The Names, writing melodies and ideas for Incredible tracks. Incredible melodies. Thank you. I appreciate that. And I really felt like the only way that they would come out into the world would be uh, if I made my own record. But I did feel like these tracks were worthy of putting out into the world. And if I didn't do it, they wouldn't exist now. And I wouldn't be talking to you, you know, about it.
0: The, the ex- you'd be better off. Look what it's led you to. Look what it's led you to. I read you say in an interview, being in a successful band made the idea of failure become really, really scary because you hadn't experienced it. Yes. Do you feel, in a way, you become more creative through daring to fail? Yeah, I think so.
2: And um, I started DJing kind of around the time of the second Vampire Weekend record. And actually, there is a football-related story with this, which is I had a DJ set after playing this festival in germany I, I was djing in stuttgart and it was in 2010 and it was the day that germany was eliminated
1: oh
0: that happy day
2: yeah yeah and i got to the club the promoter was like okay just wait you know more people will come you know whatever it'll be fine uh you know the 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 national mood isn't that terrible uh i waited till maybe one or so he puts me on <laughs> there's maybe 20 people there <laughs> and very, very soon into the DJ set, everybody left, like literally the entire room left. It was the same day that I played for whatever, tens of thousands of people with the band. And I definitely felt like trash that night. But like you do also realize that failure is not the, the worst thing. Um, having a terrible gig in Germany the day that they get eliminated is no reason not to make music and uh, not to put yourself out there. Yeah, I
0: mean, I want to clarify the fact that they lost clearly was all your fault retrospectively, but you're looking failure in the eye and reveling in it. Ultimately, I believe that's what might make you possibly the perfect Arsenal fan. There you go. Oh, I like that. I want to rectify your self-image on that regard. I saw you on tour. I saw you at the Barry Ballroom. First of all, I just want to say, I've got a huge amount of respect for you, not even not just musically, mm-hmm. which I do, but for a man who's willing to rock a white tuxedo mm-hmm. like you. That is some bold stuff. Like you are encroaching on Sean Connery, Goldfinger territory. Oh, love it, Bogart in Casablanca. Love it. It's very hard to pull that look off with confidence, but you do it. Discuss.
2: A lot of it is definitely Brian Ferry influenced, and oh, yes. uh, you know the way that he presents himself. You look back at you know, Roxy music, mid-70s. It is just such a strong vibe with this kind of, like, avant-garde, weird-sounding music, but, like, presented in the classic, like, crooner sense. Uh, I, I love it so much. And, yeah, I think it's just it's, a, it's a strong when you, vibe.
0: Particularly when you do that dance you do. That, yeah. For those who haven't seen it, legs tight together, slight dip of the waist, Yeah. syncopated, knee-wiggling. Yeah. You are my Beyonce. Wow. I gotta tell you, Chris. Whoa. You are. I mean... It is a beauty. I mean, I, and I'm imagining you work with as many choreographers as she did to, oh, yeah, to master that one. Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely How would you self-describe it?
2: How would I? I it's like, I kind of call it like a doofus dance. I, I just try and, um, I always found it hard to know what to do with my hands when I've danced. So I found a career as a bass player it was very good because your hands are occupied, but your legs can do all sorts of crazy
0: I've always been a lyrics gent. There's a handful of songs in my life that I've heard first time, first listen. They've just punched me in the gut and I've yeah. fallen in love with them. Yeah. Tracy Chapman, Fast Cart, oh, New, uh, New Order, Blue Monday. Okay. A couple of others. I've got to ask you, can you name a couple of songs that you instantly loved the very first time you ever heard them?
2: I mean, the easiest one to go for would be Mother of Pearl by Roxy
0: Music. Oh. And, uh, Same mumbling lyrics.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I guess, I mean, obviously um, it's a direct influence and a direct reference on my record, but there's something, the lyrics are incredible, and the delivery, you can't tell if he's being hyper-ironic or (laughs) hyper-sincere, and it kind of doesn't matter, and I think that that's all in the performance of that song, and um, the first time I heard it, uh, it just blew my mind. I think that The Universal by Blur, It's just one of the best written songs I've ever heard, and it's kind of a similar thing where it could be a bit ironic in the delivery, but it could also be hyper sincere, and it's just the arrangement of it, it's just a glorious piece of music. I think the first time I heard it, I put it on loop for four hours or something like that and just walked around wherever I was. And then the last one, well, as a New Yorker, a huge fan of uh, New York State of Mind by Nas, the lyrics... Of that just an incredible track it's you know it's the it's a really the opening track of ilmatic it's, it's after the intro but i can't think of a better like mission statement just the beat every, everything about it
0: chris i gotta tell you it's a joy to be with you your album the names is an absolute delight sister of pearl a standout personally for me and all great fifa 16 players we wish you well we wish you godspeed Thank you so much. This has been really fun. You're a beautiful man. Ah, oh, playing behind me. Do I need to tell you? It's a track from 303. The electro-pop duo out of Boulder, Colorado. Best known for their musical and production work with the likes of Katy Perry and the Kesha track First Kiss, which is about one of the many things in life I'm still waiting for. By a conservative estimate, their music has been the soundtrack to probably mm, 73% of parties that have taken place in suburban Finnish basements over the past three years. Their new album, Night Sports, comes out May 13. But we've got a special reason for welcoming one half of that magical duo, Nat Mott, on the pod today. Nat, welcome, friend.
3: That's going to be my voicemail greeting, Raj. Thank you. And uh, I think they're going to play that at my funeral as well, my man.
0: Oh, God. I can't, you know what? I prepared my speech for that sad day already, <laughs> but we'll talk about that later. Because I've got to say, night sports, is that an homage to the great Huey Lewis classic, sports?
3: Uh, it's actually a concept album about playing football in the dark. No, it's not. I just lied to you, Rog. I'm sorry, baby. I don't want to lie to you anymore.
0: Oh, that's okay. So, yes, it is an homage to the great Huey Lewis, 1993 yes. Classic yeah. Sports. God, I love that album. I love <laughs> yeah. that album. Huey
3: Lewis, you know what? You know what? We were album. looking for names and we, we actually uh, came across that. We were kind of cross-offering to make sure there weren't too many um, uh, other albums in that, in that vein. And there was Huey Lewis and what a great rediscovery that album was for me.
0: Oh, I bet, fella. And I've got to tell you, you fiddle around with some of the big acts of today. Maroon 5, all that crap. Stop toying with the amateurs. Dig out, exhume Huey Lewis, wherever he is. Get him on stage with you. He, I bet you he still blows a mean harp.
3: Oh, he does. I think he's on an island with Tupac and Biggie, though, somewhere. <laughs> so you've got to find the island first.
0: We've got to dig him out. I've got to say, 303. We fell in love with you and your work, I've got to be honest, incredibly recently. The day after debuting our MLS coverage this season with our guitar slide sting. Meow, we joked about commissioning a singular MLS theme tune for that part of our show. Lo and behold, the day after the pod came out, a raven flew into our inbox sent from that. Let's give it a little listen, that. Yeah. Well, you don't like the sh- you, this is a L-L-A. L-L-A. Oh nah. <laughs> Nah, that, that might just be the most orgasmic thing that's happened to MLS since Sebastian Giovinco arrived. <laughs> I'm surprised that that
3: thunderous, such American wall of sound could fit on a little USB drive on the back of a Raven too.
0: Oh, Raven technology. A lot more happens underneath the wings than we could ever understand. But first things <laughs> first, Nat, you've got a successful career. You have a life. You work with Maroon 5, you work with Lil Jon. What the heck are you doing listening to our suboptimal podcast in the first place, now?
3: I don't know. I guess I'm just a glutton for uh, for punishment, and I don't know. I, I guess I just can't help but uh, but fall in love with a couple of bald guys who are, you know, broadcast from the crap part of Soho. And when I heard uh, that desperate, desperate uh, plea <laughs> for uh, an MLS theme song from you guys, I could only, you know, just follow your your creative uh, guidance and just manifest my destiny.
0: Well, I'm also Huey Lewis's agent, so it's going to be a double. Win. <laughs> For America, but can you give us some insight? We gotta talk about your creative process on this one. Was it more than just screaming MLS into a mic for twenty minutes?
3: It wasn't that much more. No, uh, yeah, you know, I, you guys did a great job of providing uh, the inspiration. You wanted something highly American, I think. You guys were both very hung up on the guitar slide. And so uh, I busted out my guitar and, uh, and started screaming. Yeah. And it was, it was about an hour and a half, I think.
0: Oh, 90 minutes. You're an amazing man. You're very kind trying to throw the inspiration back on us. But our version was solely a cappella. You had to fill in so many blanks with this. And I need to ask you, the lyrics. I mean, I adore, <laughs> I adore minimalism, that. Working out what to leave in, what to leave out, chipping away. At a stone, a rough-hewn stone, like a brilliant sculptor. I've got to be honest, I don't like to be hyperbolic. But I don't think Robert Frost, I don't think Maya Angelou could have done better here. Who was your muse with these lyrics? Uh, You know what? I'm going to shout
3: out my dad, who's done a lot of work on minimalism and minimalism in French writing. uh, The oulipo, especially. Um, And yeah, sometimes it's the space between the notes, Raj, that is really important.
0: (sighs) You know what? I'm going to get a mug. That says that <laughs> for the next show. There's so much I love about you. The more I found out about you. You're six foot seven, American Peter Crouch. But your football love, it was forged in 1998. You've got a French mum. You've just alluded to your French literature teaching dad. You were in France the summer, the multi-ethnic black-blanc-burr team won the World Cup 1998. Take us back.
3: That team wasn't really meant to win the World Cup. And, you know, as you mentioned, they were from so many different cultural backgrounds. I think it opened up a lot of space for people, you know, both in, in the world of sport and, the, and just culture in general. And that's, that's really where I first kind of fell in love with, with football and, and especially kind of my first love is the international soccer. And being in a country that wins the World Cup in that country, there, it, was, it was incredible. That's something I'll never forget.
0: Oh, it's just too sad that you weren't in England in 66, but you fell in love with a spectacular ball. Your favorite player?
3: Yeah, probably Zidane. I mean, who's who's wasn't it that year? It it was incredible.
0: And your love of the French was just a gateway drug to Arsenal fandom. Thierry Henry, (laughs) Patrick Vieira, Manny Petit, they solidified that French connection. How are you holding up emotionally this season, That.
3: Speaking of being a glutton for punishment, it's interesting because my, you know, my, I came to the Premier League a little late. It was actually you know, um, with your guys' coverage of the 2014 World Cup that I came to your show and then from there to the Premier League. So uh, it's only been a, a couple of years, but uh, I, I'm starting to feel like it's been a lifetime of, of this uh, <laughs> disappointment.
0: It gets worse for you, Nat, because you're based in Colorado and your local MLS club, the nearest to Boulder, are?
3: The Colorado Rapids.
0: Owned by Arsenal's absentee landlord, Stan Kroenke. So you've got the seed of an affection for them too.
3: Yeah, I'm waiting for a call-up to be honest. I'm I'm actually six foot eight, <laughs> and I think I could be a, a great kind of late blooming keeper, maybe kind of like a bruising Andrew Carroll-style man oh, bun forward.
0: You're the George Maurice and the Boulder, but h- how is it in Boulder right now? Can you give us a temperature check? Is everyone just walking around the Gun Barrel District talking about Tim Howard's imminent arrival with just quivering <laughs> excitement?
3: There's a great subculture of, of sports, you know, like like football for the Rapids and stuff, but it is a, a kind of dominated by the Denver Broncos. And I think people are still, you know, I mean, it was, it was incredible. We actually played the, the rally for the, the Super Bowl uh, winning rally in Denver and it is Broncos country out here. So it's, it's kind of, you know, every other sport is living in the shadow of it a little bit.
0: I got to tell you, I've been listening to your music, 303's music in anticipation of having you on. And there's one lyric I got to ask you about. In, in your infamous song, my <laughs> the line my dick's bigger than whales where did that come from that you know
3: we were uh we actually wrote that um up at a, a riding retreat that we organized with our friends and it was late <laughs> night and we'd had a couple <laughs> drinks and um we were kind of throwing some some cockney rhyme scheme stuff back and forth with our friend liam o'donnell who's also <gasps> a, a, a big football fan who's from uh leeds and uh so I don't know. We were, we were kind of, <laughs> and there, you know, the, the wordplay between whale and uh, the country whales, you know, it's, it's very deep, deep stuff. I know you talked about Robert Frost earlier. You know, I, I don't know if he could necessarily do better on this song either.
0: Nuance, subtlety, multi-layered. By the way, I think that my d*** should be the official track for Wales Euro 2016 campaign. And I'm going to speak uh, to Chris Coleman and the lads and see if they <laughs> will adopt it. You're a beautiful man. We are honestly, we are humbled. We marvel. Uh, not just the creativity, but just the speed with which you operate. It's not easy to craft excruciatingly such musical genius in a, such an incredibly short time under intense pressure. You did it. You're doing it again. Your new album, 303's Night Sports, comes out May 13. I mean, I salute you as a musician, mostly. Nat, I salute you as a remarkably creative GFOP. We are absolutely grateful. We do not take it for granted Let's go out one more time with your road to MLS. Oh, there it is. From sad nap soundtrack indie rock to nipple tingling electro pop. Three musicians brought together by their love of the Premier League and sweet, sweet narrative. A huge thanks to Aaron Desner of The National, Chris Bayo from Vampire Weekend, and Nathaniel Mott of 303. Beautiful blokes all for joining us on this Men in Blazers, the musical pod special. Look out for Aaron's new album, Day of the Dead, a Grateful Dead tribute album, available May 20th. Chris's first solo album, The names, it's magnificent and it's out now. And that's upcoming wonder, Night Sports, available May 13th. Though you'll hear his MLS sting, I imagine, a fair amount as the MLS season progresses. To you all, courage.